Episode 24 of the Guns and Yoga podcast. My name is Wendy Hummel. Today we'll hear a conversation that I had with Claudel Ardeburn, a retired Wichita police officer. Claudel is married to Brian Ardeburn, also a veteran police officer who is now medically retired due to injuries he sustained in February of 2017 while attempting to capture a felony suspect. An incident that nearly took his life and left him with a traumatic brain injury and other serious medical issues. Claudel shares the details of that day, walks us through what life has been like for both her and Brian, and the complications of traumatic brain injuries. At a time when Brian and Claudel were looking forward to starting their life together, as they had just been married three weeks prior, she was making life and death decisions for Brian. In February 2017, Brian was conducting surveillance in South Wichita, a regular part of his job. While attempting to capture a fleeing felon in a stolen vehicle, Brian was run over. He suffered chest, abdomen, and brain injuries and spent nearly 10 months in hospitals throughout the country, having numerous surgeries and other complications. Claudel talks about Brian's journey and the time she spent with him during those days away from home and her support system. Brian's community rallied behind him. They sent letters, made t-shirts, and people filled their yards with blue for Brian yard signs. In fact, you can still see several to this day. As I personally reflect on the events of that day, there's a quote on the Officer Down Memorial Page website that comes to mind. It reads, when a police officer is killed, it's not just an agency that loses an officer, it's an entire nation. When Brian was injured, no one knew if he would survive. The impact of this event touched so many people and can still be felt today. Brian's family, friends, his co-workers who were with him that day, his entire agency and community. In addition to being Brian's sole caregiver, Claudel tells us that she's starting a new chapter in her career in counseling. She's finishing up her schooling and wants to work with other first responders and their families. She knows firsthand what it's like to do the job, survive tragedy, and now wants to give back and serve those who selflessly serve our community. When we first started this podcast, the mission was to educate and inform first responders and their families. It still is, but now I think it's imperative that anyone and everyone listen, and here's why. At a time when not just law enforcement, but all public safety professions are struggling to hire and retain personnel, it's imperative that we come together so that we can do more to support those who are willing to do things that most others are not. When Brian went to work the day that his life changed forever, he had been doing that for over 25 years, just the same as so many of our other first responders. We need to understand and come together as a community and do a better job serving them because if they are mentally, physically, and emotionally healthy, they will better serve their community and their family. This is police reform at its most fundamental level. I hope that you enjoy this episode and please, if you find value in it, share it, give us a review. And if you'd like to be notified of future episodes, you can subscribe on our Podbean website or email us at wendy at bluelineyoga.com. 
Welcome to the show, Claudel. It's great to have you here. Thank you. So today we're going to talk to Claudel Ardeburn, and I'm probably going to call her Cece. That's her nickname, and it's a lot easier for me to say, but uh, I'm really excited and, and very grateful that you're here today because um, you're not only an incredible person, law enforcement, retiree, uh, you have an incredible story, and I just love your mission and where you're headed with your life. And I think the listeners are going to really benefit from hearing your story, although I, I know some of it will be a little bit difficult at times. But for those of you who don't know Cece, um, she is a veteran law enforcement officer from the Wichita Police Department. She spent about 18 years before she retired, and I think she's still a reserve. I don't know how often she works out on the street. But she's also currently enrolled in a master's program um, for clinical mental health health counseling. And that kind of stemmed from an incident that her husband uh, was involved in back in 2017 that I'll let her talk about that. She's married to Brian Arterburn, and he himself uh, retired after 26 years with the Wichita Police Department. So again, welcome to the show, Cece. Well, thank you for having me, Wendy. And I appreciate you giving me the opportunity to um, tell uh, a bit of my journey. Um, like you said, I am married to a retired officer. Um, our story is pretty unique and um, we got married in January, uh, January 14th of 2017. And um, it's, we worked the night to, uh, before we worked together and um, he got off about 9.30 that night and I worked till about two in the morning and um, he uh, got up early to work the next morning, and um, I went in later on that, um, well, I was supposed to go in about five o'clock that afternoon, and I was running on the treadmill. My son was sick, and I got a phone call about, well, actually, it was a text about 1.30 that afternoon from a coworker, and the coworker said, who got ran over at work? Hmm. And I said, um, I don't know. I'll text Brian, my husband, and um, I text him and he didn't answer. And I thought that was, you know, normal because he's probably right in the middle of it because that's how he was. And uh, then I called his partner and she didn't answer. And I thought that was maybe a little bit odd. But then... Um, that same officer texts me back and said, I found out who it is, it's Brian. And I said, well, uh, Brian who? The Brian I thought it was had just got promoted and it was working upstairs. And um, then he texts back, it's your Brian. And uh, my world drastically changed at that moment. And I thought, couldn't be. And then um, another coworker called me and um, my world changed. So um, it's kind of like my life existed before that moment, stopped, and then I am now living a life after that moment. So, um, you know, we had been married three weeks. I hadn't even officially changed any legal documents. Um, he and I were waiting to tell our families. So no one at work had even known. We eloped. We went to Las Vegas and um, I ran a marathon and we got married that night. 
So, wow. So that's, so I just want to ask you about that real quick before I, before you continue on with, sure. with that moment. So you guys had been coworkers for quite a while. And for those of us in law enforcement, I mean, when you're a female, when you're a cop, you know, there's not that many of us, a lot of us end up with other cops. I mean, it, it's not always the case. And so how long did you know Brian before um, before 2017? Did Had you guys worked together for quite a while or? I worked with him the entire time. We gotcha. he worked in the same area of town. So I'd known him the entire time. So, so you guys were really good friends until whatever point things started to shift in your, in your relationship. Yes. So, um, and we had been together for about, um, a year and a half at this mm -hmm. time. So it was, um, pretty devastating. So I, I immediately um, told my son was 11 years old and I told him um, Brian had gotten ran over and um, he said, are you okay, mom? And I said, yeah, I'm fine. I just have to go to the hospital. And, you know, I had been an officer for 15 years and I had never broken down or went into shock like this. Mm -hmm. And... I just started shaking. I, I was shaking so bad that my son had to come hold me to stop the trembling. And um, the officer that had called, I asked him, I said, how bad is it? And he, because, you know, uh, the, I guess, type of relationship we had, he just told me exactly how bad it was. He said, he's not breathing. Um, they're, you know, taking him to, you know, the particular hospital they were taking him to. And, uh, I said, why would you tell me that on the phone? And I hung up. So, yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, it was, uh, I, I mean, I, I obviously was a little harsh with him, but I understand that that was the nature of a relationship and he was probably in shock himself as well. Yeah. So looking back, I mean, every officer that heard all of that radio traffic they were traumatized by that as well, because I've worked through officer shootings and that's traumatizing. So um, another officer um, had called me and said, I'm on my way, I'm picking you up. And um, I think he heard the fear and intensity in my voice. And he said, I, I said, how close are you? And my mind was saying, buddy, I'm not waiting. And he said, I'm, I'm two minutes away. He was more like 10 minutes away, but he said two minutes away and he got there as quick as he could. And, uh, he turned to me and he said, I didn't know you were married and Brian's partner, of course, they worked together every day and she had noticed his ring. And right. so of course I, you know, after Brian had been ran over, she had said, um, you know, is telling everybody he, he and Cece are married. Someone get her, mm -hmm. you know, immediately tell her immediately, get her to the hospital immediately. So, it, you know, everything moves so rapidly. And um, then, you know, you kind of just go in a crisis mode and you're just living on adrenaline. So it, it just kind of devastated, you know, my, my life and the life of 
you know, our, our family and it shocked the community. And it was um, something that you, I guess you never imagine is going to directly hit your family until the moment it does. And you certainly don't think that's going to be how you live your honeymoon phase out. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, as cops, as first responders, we, we see these things sometimes daily, sometimes multiple times during one shift. But I don't know that there's anything really that can prepare you for when it happens to your own family member, let alone somebody in your, your agency as well, how it can impact us. And, and I agree with you 100% about what you said earlier. Obviously, that's, this has impacted you and your family directly and for the rest of your life. But, but thinking about how that rippled out and impacted others that not only were on scene and were involved, but everybody in the agency. I mean, that was, and really out into the community, because I remember the outpouring of support that was a result of, of that tragedy. It was pretty incredible. Um, I look back now and realize how I was in that crisis mode for such a long time. I had called my sister. Um, I, I come from a very large family. I'm actually the youngest of 14 children. Oh, wow. Um, so I, I have one sister. She's 14 months older than me, and um, she's actually a physician's assistant for the VA in Salina. So I had called her, and I just said, and it's funny because she said she was at work and walked by a TV, and she just had a weird sense so she stopped and she heard on the TV an officer had been ran over in Wichita and she said she knew. She said something in her knew. And um, she didn't hear any more details. They didn't release a name. They didn't release anything. And then she said she got the phone call and she kind of rushed up here and um, she stayed for a solid two weeks. And if she had not um, been here, I don't know how I would have managed because my main function at that point was Brian's survival. And um, I was secondary to all of that. I kind of just went into the, the mode of signing papers um, that I, I, I had no idea what I was signing. Like, okay, if you do the surgery, he has, you know, a good chance of not making it through the surgery. But if you don't do it, he has a 90% chance of dying. So you don't think that you're going to be signing those papers when you, you know, you're not even used to signing that last name. So it's a lot of things are, when I look back, a lot of things just seem like those weren't actually me doing those things. Right. It sounds like you were, it was probably just surreal. Here you are, like you said, in your honeymoon phase, uh, not even used to your new last name. Nobody even knew the people that you worked alongside with every day didn't even know you guys had gotten married. And, and now here you are in this situation that is unimaginable. Yeah. So do you mind sharing just a little bit to give everyone who isn't familiar with, with this situation, uh, an idea? I mean, I know you mentioned it a little bit, but how serious Brian's in injuries really were and, um, and for the length of time that he went through his recovery process. Uh, so when Brian was ran over, he sustained a um, traumatic brain injury. He uh, actually 
the doctors after um, when they did the scans of his brain, there wasn't uh, any part surface of his brain that wasn't damaged. The direct hit, um, he was ran over by uh, Tahoe. The direct hit was to the front of his head, but when uh, the back of his head slammed down into the concrete, the back of his skull fractured. So um, he had to have the right side of his skull removed to relieve the pressure on his brain. He had uh, damage to his kidney. He had damage to his um, colon, eight broken ribs, um, two uh, facial fractures, and um, damage to his liver. It took wow. him five weeks in the ICU at, um, in here in town. And, um, he was in a coma for all of those five weeks. Then he was in, uh, rehab for nine months. And then after those nine months, we, um, he was released to come back home. So, um, it was kind of hit or miss for about five five, six weeks, we didn't know whether he was really going to pull through. And then when we realized he was going to pull through, he had um, a lot of bumps. So as we're trying to navigate through all of this, it was like all the trauma would start to heal um, for me. And then we would go through another crisis like, okay, then he'd have to have another surgery because he would have, you know, some um, a fluid buildup or more swelling on his brain. So it was constantly having to, you know, go through that tr uh, crisis mode for, for both of us, really. He doesn't remember probably the first six months after he, he was ran over. And I, I tell him he's blessed for all of that. He, you know, he, he has really no memory of any of that. Right. Yeah. I, I think, I think there's some truth in that for sure. So you say he was here in town for five weeks and then went, he went, you guys left your home for a good, what, nine months plus for yes. him to recover. And that also had to be another layer of difficulty for you to be away from your support system, what, how, what was that like? And, and, you know, how did you kind of get through that point? Did you have family with you or? Um, no, I, my son was very young and his father is, um, wonderful. He was wonderful at that point, And he just stepped up and said, you know, I'll, he'll be fine. I'll take care of him. And I still have a tremendous amount of, of guilt and sorrow for having to really make that decision um, to, but I would come home as often as I could. However, I knew it was harmful to Brian when I left because he would just really focus on, I mean, it was very destructive. He would focus on, I want to leave. I want to leave. I, I mean, that was kind of like, he could not snap himself out of that. He didn't understand why he was there. He, I mean, he had no memory of any of this. And, um, he was very, with brain injuries, especially with the frontal lobe, he had so much damage to all of that emotion regulation, um, decision-making, all of that. He was very, he was a very difficult patient. So, um, it, I, I spent most of my time there with him, trying to keep him focused on, you know, the bigger picture. We were going to get back home to our friends and family and, um, just, trying to keep him positive. So I really isolated myself. 
I didn't have any family or friends there. I did have um, uh, two members of the Denver Police Department. Um, one met actually met our plane when we landed in Denver, um, and he was amazing. He um, it, it's kind of you don't really know how much to interact with someone in that. I was very, and I must say, he was good at I guess gauging how much interaction to because I remember he was there the first day. I vaguely remember. Um, and his name's Bobby. I remember he was there the first day and then left his card. And I thought, I just kind of put it in my purse. And then I think four or five days later, he might've sent me a text, making sure you're okay. And you know, that was good because I, I was a very private person and I was in crisis. I, I was in my own shell and I, I, I desperately needed someone to, I guess, come and help me navigate things. Mm -hmm. But I, you know, there, there were counselors and social workers there for the patients, um, but not really for the family. So I never really had that intervention. Um, right. The psychologist at that particular hospital did talk to me a couple of times, like, hey, you need to do self-care, you need to do this stuff. But I never really had a, um, a therapist or a counselor sit down and say, hey, you know, let's try to focus. Um, so that's kind of, I wished I, looking back, I wished I would have had something like that. But yeah, those rehab hospitals really focus on the patient. So... I understand where that comes from, but, um, and then I, there was another member of the police department that would come in and, and, um, help me do things and just kind of as a friend, but not trained to help someone get out of crisis. So I really did not get out of that crisis mode for a long time. Yeah. And you bring up a couple of really good points. First of all, I love that you had some support from another law enforcement agency, whatever that looks like. I think it's great that you had that. Um, and you knew on some level, even though you didn't know them until they, they, they came to the airport and came to the hospital. Um, there is something to be said about that. Our blue family, you know, we know that we've got each other's back. We're in this kind of this, this tribe together, but also, you know, and this, you talk about family. And I think so many times on so many levels that we forget about the family. I mean, you're, you're a cop and a first responder, but you're also a spouse. And so I think sometimes maybe people make false assumptions about how you can handle things, or we just don't think about how this is impacting family. And so I'm glad you brought that up because, um, you know, hindsight's, you know, it's always easier to think, you know, what could have been helpful at the time, but um, you know, just maybe something even for that rehab hospital to consider when you've got a case like that. Because I imagine with traumatic brain injuries, Brian wasn't the only one, <clears throat> excuse me, who was there for a, an extended period of time. Um, no, actually, that particular hospital specializes in spinal cord injuries. And okay. um, on the fourth floor and the third floor is all traumatic brain injuries. 
And, um, and, and they actually had another um, officer there. He flew in shortly after Brian. Brian's case is unique because he was the one of the longest patients they had there. Oh, because okay. while Brian was there, he went, um, his liver, he had a liver transplant about one year before he was ran over and his liver started to be rejected. So in the middle of all of his recovery from this, um, this uh, brain injury, he had to fly to KU for, um, to, for his liver to rejection to be treated. So then he had to kind of start over again. So it was going back that kind of reset all of that. And then they decided at some point, okay, Brian's not going to get any better here because he's kind of stuck in this mode. So we had to look for facilities across the United States that would take um, a patient such as Brian. And by that, I mean high levels of aggression. And, um, and it was all due to his brain injury because that has nothing to do with Brian's personality because that's not at all who he was. We did find one in Texas. And I thought, this is going to be a great new start. I have no family that's around there either. But I thought, okay, this is good things are going to happen. And I remember feeling so wonderful as we flew down there. And um, that particular facility um, was uh, not at all a good thing for Brian or I. And, um, you know, that's uh, you know, a whole other thing. Um, you know, I, I quickly learned in that experience how important advocating for someone especially a spouse or a child um, is because he was not getting the care he needed. They were over medicating him. And, um, you know, I, I had to turn into, um, you know, an advocate. So then I was right back in crisis mode. My care, self-care went completely out the window. Any type of um, healing I was doing was gone. So, you know, it, it really was about, I would say a good full year before my healing process emotionally started. And, um, you know, once we got back home, it was really wonderful for Brian. He got, you know, what he really needed is to reconnect with his friends, especially his partner and officers. He was so grateful and happy to see the support um, from the community. I mean, we're almost four and a half years after this has happened and he still pulls out the cards, reads cards from the community. He is, um, when we go out in the community, he just loves, loves seeing people, um, loves meeting people, loves helping people. That's still something so um, ingrained in his heart. So those are all things our family's grateful for. So that's always been, um, when Brian had to medically retire, it was like another, you know, critical injury to him because that took something that meant so much away from him. And I had already, I, I had already had enough time to, I guess, come to grips with that. And he didn't, he, once he woke up from everything that happened, he thought, oh, great. I'm going to go back to work. And I knew that was never going to happen. So having to help him kind of go through all of that, that was difficult. So after we came back, um, 
you know, I was fortunate. Um, the, the chief of the police department allowed me to have as much time as I really needed to, um, pull myself together to come back to work. So when I finally did go back to work, um, I, I realized Brian, when I was at work was kind of, he was okay with me being at work, but I felt like every time I left for work, it was maybe heartbreaking for him. And then I thought, well, you know, as I was decompressing from everything that happened and thinking about what could, you know, what would have been more helpful in my journey, I realized that, you know, so many missed opportunities to help me through my crisis and what would have helped me maybe emotionally make it through better than I did. And I mean, there were a lot of very, very dark times. And, you know, I didn't really reach out to anyone. I didn't want to burn, my parents were older and I didn't want to burden them. I remember my birthday, I was at Craig and it was, Brian had a very bad day. And um, I just remember my mom and dad called and I went to one end of the hall and I just, I lost it. And it's one of the few times I really allowed anyone to hear me cry. And I, I cried. I, I couldn't calm myself down. And I just remember looking, like thinking now, especially through, you know, everything I'm learning in, in uh, graduate school right now, I'm like, I was in full crisis mode. I was in, how did I survive? I mean, it's still shocking to me. Those were dark times. And, you know, so now my, my journey is just kind of moved towards helping people in that situation. Yeah. And unfortunately, a lot of times what <clears throat> brings people to something that they're passionate about is something that is lived experience. I mean, I think a lot of it's very common for first responders in particular to want to try to go it alone. You know, we think we can handle everything. That's what we do. Um, but obviously that we know that's not true now. Um, but you know, we're wired for connection and it's so much better to, to reach out than to try to, to try to tough it out by yourself. And in particular, gosh, something that you you're, you've gone through is on a whole nother level. And so, you know, I'm glad you said that because so many people, I think they do still try to go it alone and the importance of, you know, you recognizing the need for you to talk to somebody, to be surrounded by people, by loved ones, um, because, you know, you're not the only one that's like that. Yeah. Oh, I, and I, I definitely see that. I, I realized, you know, a lot of those, those times I, you know, I would go through like, okay, I'm, I'm going to, you know, buy some wine and then I'd have a, a glass of wine and I'd think, well, this is not definitely not going to help me. And, you know, and then I just sit there and, and, and I had a little apartment and what made it worse in, um, the hospital in Colorado is they moved me into a, like a, a nursing assisted, I, I guess it's, yeah, it's kind of like an assisted living facility. And I'm like, if this is not depressing enough, you know, I'm drinking wine in here by myself and I, you know, and I, and I just really immersed myself into running. And that's the only thing I allowed myself to really do for myself. So that's kind of when I would, you know, have my conversations, you know, I, I, that's when I would talk to God and that's when I would try to 
pull my stuff together. And then I would shower and, and go spend time with Brian. And um, that was the mission of every day. And, you know, the therapists were good there. You know, his, his occupational therapist, his physical therapist would say, you know, go do something for yourself. And But the guilt that I would feel when I go do something for myself, it was just tremendous. And, you know, I, I remember a couple of times I got very, and I'm talking maybe on one hand, I can count the times I got angry with Brian. And um, he had so much aggression and he said so many things that, you know, I know it's the brain injury, but as he's saying or doing these cruel, mean things, they still hurt, you know? Mm -hmm. And um, I, I, on one hand, I can count the times I, I said, or, you know, maybe said or, or stormed off. And I still carry guilt from that. And um, that's what's most painful. And, you know, I'll, we talk about them now. And he's like, I don't even remember them. Please let them go. And I'm like, you don't understand. That's, that's, I still hurt from that. So I'm still trying to heal from those, those moments. So, you know, I, I realize I did those in moments of, you know, I was in crisis. I was, you know, I, I didn't know how far, you know, I had gone. I was on the edge. I was just right there on the edge. And emotionally, I was spent and um, desperate. But, you know, there was really no one around. And, um, and those were all, most of those all happened in facilities. And I remember there might be a CNA in there like, you know, Miss Claudel, go, go take a walk, you know, do whatever. And, and, uh, you know, he, he would get aggressive and, you know, you might have a little 19 year old girl here and, and they'd say, nope, nope, nope. You know, we can handle this. And I'm like, I am absolutely not going to allow, you know, this, this strong man. They're like, oh, you know, it's fine. And I'm like, don't ever underestimate a man that's been an officer for 25 years. I don't care what the situation is. They're still, and, um, and I think that, you know, they quickly learned he is a force to be reckoned with. So, <laughs> yeah, you know, yeah, it's for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, it, you just learn a lot of things about yourself in, in these times. And, uh, I spent so much time alone in, in, a lot of that was self-induced. I mean, I would have people want to spend time with me and I'm just like, I don't have the energy. Mm -hmm. You know? Yeah. Well, and you know, I know you would probably say this to somebody else. Like if, if you were talking to somebody who was in a similar situation, because what I'm hearing is that you're still being really hard on yourself. Yeah. And it sounds to me that you did an amazing, incredible job. If you're saying you only got frustrated on, you can count how many times on one hand, um, then you're a saint in my book. And so maybe, maybe trying to look back at yourself and thinking how incredible of a job you did versus being so hard on yourself because you have been through a lot. And, um, you know, I know we do that as human beings though. We're, we're much harder on ourselves than we are with others. I appreciate you saying that. I, I, I try to give myself grace and, and Brian says the same thing. Like, Oh, come on. You know, I mean, I, I don't think I would have ever even survived if you wouldn't have been there. And I'm just like, I'm trying to give myself grace, but you know, I, it's hard for me not to, to say, cause when he would be saying terrible things and I look at it and I'm just like, man, he's scared. I, I'm not seeing an angry person. I'm seeing a scared person. Like 
he is is scared to death and it was just it would it, it was just frustrating for him and you know even when we got back home, um, he had a psychologist here and he still has her. And I, and I said, I, I want Brian to be in therapy. And, and she'd say, well, it, it's not going to do him any good. He doesn't have insight. People with a brain injury like him, uh, he does, doesn't have insight. And I'm like, he has insight. His brain has recovered remarkably. And I think it's surprised most of um, his is a psychiatrist, psychologist, because he does have so much insight. And that's, you know, an area that I also see that um, is, you know, I wish there was more therapists that work with, you know, injured officers, especially uh, traumatic brain injured officers. I mean, it, it is a very unique specialty, but he, his brain does think a little more uniquely, but I seen that when, um, you know, he would maybe go into the psychologist, it was hard for her to kind of understand when he was trying to explain something or, you know, why he was reacting the way he was. And um, we would try to come up with a, uh, like a safety plan at home. And part of the safety plan was, okay, in this step, we call the police. And I'm like, no, I've got to stop you here. That cannot be the solution for here that is going to escalate it, you know? And so as I'm sitting there, and this is before I went back to work, I said, no, no, I, I this is not gonna work. So I, I see that there is, um, I guess there, there's gotta be a better way. So I'm like, okay, I've got to create that better way, even if it's just mm -hmm. for Brian. So then after working for a while, I'm like, okay, no, uh-uh, I've got to create a better way for other officers. So if I need to go and study and figure out what this better way is, I'm going to do it. Because, the, you know, we, the times that Brian has had interactions with officers, after his brain injury, you know, when he is in a crisis mode, it, it wasn't good. So... I mean, and it wasn't good for the officers either. I mean, when he was in Kansas City uh, with a liver rejection, he had a, a bad um, time. He went, he was co completely freaked out. He had delirium and officers had to come up there. Um, and it was so traumatizing to them because he's an officer and they're like, we don't know what to do. And they were young. And I remember looking at one of them and he had tears in his eyes. That is trauma. Yeah. And that really bothered me. And all of these moments are just kind of like in my mind. So that's part of my journey now. Yeah. And that, that's, you know, that speaks volumes because what you're doing with, with your experience is so admirable. And, you know, one thing I was going to ask you, because obviously, you know, much more about TBIs than, than I do, or probably the listeners too. I know a little, very little bit about it. And I actually saw a movie and of course the name escapes me and I may have gone back and forth with you through email back, back when I first watched this movie, but it's about a snowboarder, um, an Olympic snowboarder. He was a teenager and he got a traumatic brain injury from, from a snowboarding accident. And so it was a really inspiring story because it was how hard it was for his family. And, and so, and one thing, um, that we don't, really talk about too much in law enforcement is we do have a lot of law enforcement officers that have TBIs. Now, obviously not to the extent that Brian suffered. 
um, and how that can oftentimes be misunderstood for a mental health disorder. And so maybe, I don't know how much you can get into detail about this, but even just talking about, and it sounds like Brian's come a really long way, which is incredible, which shows the ability for the brain to heal, especially given the right environment, thanks to you. But what, what before Brian and after the accident, Brian, like maybe some of the differences in behavior and his day-to-day, -day, like how he lives his life, what that looks like so people can kind of get a clear picture of of what that is in your case, because I know every case is probably different. Sure. Um, so it depends on, you know, where the brain injury is. But so Brian, his brain injury is on, um, a lot of it was focused on the right side of his brain. So that's gonna affect the left side of his body. So Brian is left-handed. <laughs> so he has weakness in that left hand, kind of like a stroke patient. So he can't really um, write very well with his right side everything he's having to do with his right side, that, that leads to an incredible amount of frustration. So emotion, uh, regulation, decision-making, all of that is the frontal lobe. Brian has extensive damage to the frontal lobe. So when his brain was injured, it kind of severed um, like all of that brain activity from the right to the left. So your brain does find a way to heal and kind of make those connections again. And sometimes those connections aren't necessarily smooth. So sometimes, um, I mean, it, it, in certain times, like when Brian gets very fatigued, his brain gets very fatigued and it might be like, he sometimes sleeps 14 hours a day because your brain needs um, rest. So when he gets very fatigued, his speech will be very slurred. It's kind of like he's intoxicated. So um, you might, as an officer, come across someone that has intoxicated speech. Brian, when he walks, um, it looks like he might be intoxicated. However, um, they're telltale signs. I mean, when you know what to look for, that, um, okay, something's not quite adding up. I mean, I think about maybe other intoxicated people I've dealt with before in the past, like, okay, is this quite right? Um, you know, maybe he could be intoxicated, but then asking some more questions. So with Brian, um, he was very laid back, funny, joked a lot. He's still some of those things a lot of the time, but now his frustration level, it might come on like rapidly. Like the other day, he kind of slipped in the kitchen and I said, well, what happened? And he goes, well, I slipped on water. And I said, well, where'd the water come from? And then, you know, he just had a sudden outburst where he shouted, the, the hose for the sink is leaking and it was just out of nowhere. And, you know, when we first came back home, that might be enough for him to just rage and storm and, you know, stomp out of the house. But since we've worked so much on, you know, um, behavior control and how we regulate that, he just, you know, calmly walked into the bedroom and, and said, I want to be left alone and calmed himself down. So that's gotten so much better. Um, he's more aware of what he says. He, there are times where he can't control something he says or thinks, or, you know, his memory is not great. His short-term memory is not great. Um, his long-term memory is phenomenal. He'll tell you 
things about when he was five years old and he lived in uh, Iran. I mean, he lived in Iran and he'll tell you all about that, but then maybe he won't remember something two weeks ago. So it's, it's, um, the brain is a remarkable thing. We don't really know what all the brain's capable of. So it's kind of interesting to, um, really talk to Brian because you're like, you remember that, but you don't remember this. So it's, I think a lot of officers avoid Brian because they don't really know how to, how he's going to be. And I'm like, I, you guys, I don't know why you're avoiding him. He's not like he was when he first came home. He's fine. So, um, I, he went to a retirement party, uh, yesterday and I, I think they were probably surprised like, wow, this guy's, you know, he's kind of like the old Brian when you talk to him. I mean, physically he's not, but you know, he jokes around, he remembers things. He's a goofball like he was before. Well, it just that, that, well, that tells me is how hard you've worked personally to get to the point where he's got that, you know, self-regulation piece and, I mean, it sounds like you've done an incredible job with, with helping him get to where he is. Well, really. I appreciate you. I appreciate the kind words. I'm sure Brian thinks, well, <laughs> he, he's grateful, but then he's like, ah, <laughs> I mean, he, I remember thinking to myself because people would say, well, he's going to be grateful one day for the things you've done. And I'm thinking, oh, cause he'd just be like, you know, I remember him telling me all the time, why don't you just go home? Because <laughs> he knew I was the reason he was staying in these facilities. And and now he's just like, I'm so glad you made me stay. Because if I wouldn't have stayed in those places, I, I, I would probably be in a nursing home. And I'm like, I never thought you would say that. You know, it's, it, but it's difficult. You know, it's, yeah, it's hard. Because, <laughs> well, I can tell you that, um, a husband thinking his wife is a pain in the ass isn't unique. Yeah. Well, that's what I told Brian. He's like, yeah, you know, I don't need you to tell me again. And I'm like, but you kind of do because you forget. But then if he doesn't forget, he's like, I know. And I'm like, but you didn't know so yesterday. So what is the day-to-day -day life for Brian like now? How is he? I mean, I know you're going to school and you have to go out and leave and does he need constant care or is he able to, to be by himself? Does he drive? Things like that. Well, it just depends. Um, we're working on driving. We're trying to get him back there. Um, with mm -hmm. Brian, it's kind of every day is different. So like last year, Brian got really sick and he rapidly goes downhill. Like the flu for you and I might just cause us to be, you know, feeling a little sick in bed for a day or two. The flu will put Brian in the hospital. Um, mm. and it's like, and right now he's, something's a little off with him. So I have to watch him closely. It's like, okay, maybe it's something he'll say. It's a change in behavior that I'm like, I, mm, I don't, like, you know, Brian just said something that's different than he would normally say. And it might just be one word or a tone that makes me think, okay, something is different. So I have to watch him closely. He can be by himself if, if everything is going good. Um, I have to watch him closely, like in the morning to make sure he takes his meds. He usually does not forget. I have them all in a planner. He usually doesn't forget, but sometimes he does. Um, I have to 
kind of lay out his day. I, I'm home. I do my school online. So I'm home usually all during the day. I like for him to be independent as much as he can, because when he is independent as much as he can, he feels more, um, I guess, like his own person. And that gives him confidence. And that confidence um, kind of empowers him. And I like that. When he feels like I am controlling his everyday life, that makes him maybe very, um, I don't know, not defiant because it sounds like he's a child, but it just makes him, I guess, not necessarily, um, he, it just makes our, it disrupts our household. Just kind of, you know, like he just, it just like we're kind of working against each other instead of you know, on the same team. So, um, sure. are but, there any like, um, activities that he participates in regularly? And I, I, I know you mentioned to me in the past, some organization that he's really, uh, he's really latched onto that's been supportive of him. So he loves to do his paintballing and he has that <laughs> same team and they were so amazing through all of this. So he has that, um, he's on a paintball team called bad juju and they play out here at a local field and they did some fundraising and stuff after, uh, he was ran over and these guys were just the sweetest guys. And, um, so he does do that and he did that for years before, but, um, he loves fly fishing and that's more difficult. Um, it's difficult for, I don't, I can't even do it and nothing. I, I have no brain injury, but so, um, uh, healing waters is, a a group that works with veterans, disabled veterans. And um, there is a gentleman who was actually a officer, Wichita police officer years ago here. And he reached out, he's from Wichita and now he lives in Colorado. And he reached out when we were in Colorado. And he's one of those million messages I got on my phone when we were there, hey, you don't know me. Well, actually he sent me flowers and cookies. And I was like, you know, wasn't eating much. And I was like, oh, some guy sent some cookies and Brian wasn't eating anything. And I'm like, I'll eat, I'll eat this cookie. And I ate the cookie. And then he, you know, kept reaching out, reaching out, reaching out. And then we came home and he was like, Hey, these guys want to, you know, can we take them fly fishing? And so he's been going out to Colorado two, three times a year, um, and fly fishing. And these guys have been wonderful because a lot of them have PTSD, mm -hmm. um, or struggling in some way disabled. Brian likes that because, he does, whether he compensates or not, he knows he's different. Yeah, of course. And being around people that are different make him feel like he's not different. He's the right. same as them. And um, like when he's struggling, he'll get frustrated. And to have someone come over and say, I'll help you. And this this gentleman, his name is Dwight. He um, he loves to fly fish too, but he won't fish at all. He'll just sit there and help Brian. Brian's like, he, he, Dwight, you didn't even fish this whole time. And he's like, no. I enjoy helping you. So they were texting the other night. He found uh, some sort of uh, fly rod that's, you know, going to help Brian fish better or whatever. And Brian gets excited about that. And that's, you know, huge to him um, because, you know, he had a paintball thing he went to in Oklahoma a couple months ago and he called me very, very upset. I wasn't there. I was like two hours away on a float trip <laughs> and I told him she went to the float trip, but he wanted to do the paintball and he called me very upset and frustrated because the terrain was rocky and he kept falling. He was very upset. And I said, uh, let me just come get you. And he's like, no, I'll be fine. I'm just going to take a nap in the truck. And hearing that like breaks my heart. 
and I, you know, calmed him down and I'm just like that, man, I hate this. It just absolutely destroyed me. So I instantly started um, texting Dwight, like, we got to get this guy's confidence back up. We've got to get him fly fishing. He is so heartbroken right now. And I can't, you know, I mean, we, this, this can't be. So, you know, he used to like to ski. He tried to go skiing and that, you know, I said, Brian, would you let me find someone that works with disabled people? And he's like, I'll be fine. He didn't go with me. One of his sons took him and, and he calls me upset and, you know, I have to talk him, talk him down. And I said, next time you go, I'm, I'm getting someone that works with disabled people. And he's like, that's probably a good idea. So there are organizations that work with specifically, a lot of them um, more so work with disabled veterans, but um, that works because veterans and police officers are very similar. Um, just because that, you know, like Brian has PTSD. He's like, no, I don't. Yeah, he does. And he doesn't remember the accident. Although I started noticing after we came back, uh, or, or after we came back, I ran a marathon in Philadelphia. It was one of the first things that, um, trips that we had taken after we had come back and he started freaking out about crossing streets. I mean, he'd never done that before. And I was like, what, what's your problem? Light's green. He's like, no, can't go. And then I was like, oh my goodness, he has PTSD. And that, that blew me away. I didn't even so think he, he remembered it. He doesn't remember the incident that led to his brain injury other than what he's been told. Is that? He didn't remember okay. any of it. No. Um, and then, you know, he's had <clears throat> conversations with his uh, partner that was riding with him. Um, they've had conversations, you know, a couple of times um, about it. And it's very difficult for her, too. Um, and, you know, she struggles a lot, too. And, um, I mean, she's, you know, navigating her way through it. And I sure. tell her he's fine you know he's fine and, and it was important for you know the day it happened um you know of course interviews have to take place and all of that and um it was upsetting to me that it was taking so long for her to get there because i knew she needed to set eyes on him however i hadn't set eyes on him because he was in surgery and then he came upstairs i was thinking like and i've been to so many different you know, scenes, of course, that many years and wasn't prepared to see him the way I seen him. And, uh, that was a whole other thing. And yeah. So, I mean, so many different memories are coming back now, but yeah, to see him that way was, um, yeah, that was, uh, horrifying. And that same officer that told me on the phone, Hey, you know, he's not breathing. He was standing outside that door and he felt so bad about telling me the way he did. He sat outside his door for like 12 hours. And I said, why wouldn't you warn me? <laughs> and, yeah. And, and again, yeah, you know, he, like you said before, he was probably, I mean, yeah. oh. you, you really can never prepare yourself for, right. for a situation like that, because obviously that, that officer knew Brian as well. And, and oddly enough, he and I were, had known each other, worked on the same team for years, and um, that he, we were friends, but we weren't friends, like close mm -hmm. friends, and yeah. that guy's my best friend now. He was uh -huh. like the only person that um, I would really respond to, like when we went to Colorado, he 
text me every day. He'd say, he'd say, um, you know, just let me know you're okay every day. And he texts me every day and we're like best friends now. So I guess his mode of rude and crude <laughs> worked. <laughs> well, there's a soft spot there somewhere, obviously, right? <laughs> I guess so. I guess that's what I needed. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, so if you don't mind shifting gears just a little bit, you've already mentioned about, you know, your schooling and your decision to, you know, to retire and why you did that. So you're almost done with school, right? You were saying earlier that you're about to, to hit the point in your training where you're going to be looking for a practicum. Yes. Who, who is it? Cause you know, you, you've alluded to this a little bit. Who do you want to work with when, you know, cause you have, there's so much you can do as a therapist. So I want to, um, you know, I, and, and as I was kind of going through all of this, I thought to myself, okay, I want to work with brain injury patients. And I thought about that a lot um, because that they really touched my heart up on, you know, at the different hospitals. And then I um, started to really focus on first responders, especially coming back and seeing mm -hmm. um, how affected everybody was. Yeah. Um, so I really want to focus mainly on first responders and their families. Um, because like I said, all of looking back, I was in a crisis mode for at least a full year. And, um, and I don't know what could have been done at different points to, to get me out of that crisis mode. I know, um, there were social workers in hospitals that could have, but you know, I, maybe I wasn't ready to hear it. Maybe the delivery wasn't there. I don't know, but I know that I survived in a crisis mode for a long time and it didn't have to be that way. Um, I think that, you know, our police department, obviously I went into another city, but had our police department, you know, had a therapist maybe come into the hospital and sit down with me and say, listen, you know, and maybe just kind of explain the process, even if, you know, this is kind of where I think you're at. This is what we need to do. You know, just do some um, psychological first aid with me. Like, here's yeah. what's going on. None of that really happened. And I, um, that's kind of what I think is important. And, you know, kind of moving forward, I want to, that's a big mission for me because I, yeah. that needed to happen and didn't happen. And, you know, other officers are going to unfortunately be injured and this is going to, you know, can, it, it, and it's already increasing across the country. I needed that. It wasn't here, you know? So, and I think we're still slowly learning how important it is to right. integrate mental health and peer support, you know, chaplain services, a combination, um, to our people because, you know, we're human beings. I think a lot of times people misunderstand, uh, cops, we can handle all these, all these different things. And, and, you know, we can, we're resilient people, I think as a group, Yeah. but there's only so much a human being can take. And so really making sure that we have this, these systems in place, these people in place that are trained because you, you mentioned it earlier. You just don't, a lot of officers don't know what to say. 
what to do because it's uncomfortable. It's uncharted territory. And, and even just giving people a little bit of training, because you know how cops are, we have to know why we're doing something and understand something maybe a little bit before we go into a situation. And even just giving everybody a little bit of understanding about how this stuff works. But but, you know, it's not comfortable for people sometimes to deal with our own. Like we can deal with people out on the street all day long. But when it comes to somebody that you work with, it's a whole different ball game. It's very difficult. I remember, mm-hmm. you know, some of the officers that, that witnessed what happened to Brian couldn't go in the room. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, yeah. they and that's trauma. It's not they're not cowards. They're not anything other right. than human. It's trauma. And to even, you know, they seeing me back at work would bring tears in their eyes. And it, that was trauma. And every time it's like, that is trauma. They're not processing this, you know? And that to me was like devastating, like, oh my goodness, you don't have to live with this. This is, you know, let's process this. And they're still, you know, going and they, they have the right to process that however they want. But it's like, if you're choosing to just ignore it, that's not processing, <laughs> you know. Right, and uh, we all know how that goes if yeah. we don't process well, it. What, I, what... A year, <laughs> a year for me, <laughs> it, yeah. you know, living on the edge and, and, you know, dark nights. It's like, no, that's, yeah, so. Well, we appreciate you. I, I know I do appreciate you taking the time to share your story. You're, it's so personal, and you guys are, you and Brian are both so, really, I've said this word before, but resilient really doesn't even capture what I'm trying to say. Um, but And what you're doing moving forward, um, everything that you've done so far really is in the best interest of your family, of Brian in particular. And what you want to do, not just in the future to help him, continue to help and support him, but what you look, what you're looking to do and giving back to first responders, because we talked about this before we hit record, but we are so in need of cultural competence when it comes to our first responders and therapy. And, and I just am chomping at the bit for you to, to be ready to talk to people because I could, I could think of so many people who could benefit from, from talking to you. Oh, thank you. I I appreciate the opportunity. And I love that you're out here reaching out to people and, you know, you're getting the message out there. Thank you very much for this opportunity. Oh, yeah, of course. Thank you. Thanks, Cece. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed this episode with Claudel. If you find value, please share it, give us a review. And if you'd like to be notified of future episodes, you can subscribe on the Podbean website or email us at wendy at bluelineyoga.com. I would love to hear from you with questions, suggestions for future guests or topics that you would like to hear about. I have an exciting announcement before we sign off. I'm launching a program in January of 2022 called Radical Resilience. For years, I struggle with sleep issues directly related to my job, living in a hypervigilant state, weight gain, low energy, and more. If you're interested in learning how to build resilience and adaptability into the physiology of your nervous system by optimizing the rhythm of your habits, if you want to tap into your unique purpose and potential, and learn these habits in a dynamic group setting, then you might be interested in my year-long, and yes, I said year-long, Radical Resilience Program. We talk a lot about healing trauma on this show and overcoming adversity, and this is not one-dimensional. Learning and integrating holistic habits that include nutrition, rest, mindset, easeful living, and so much more 
Radical Resilience will empower you with the knowledge and practical tools to thrive and heal in a dynamic group setting with your peers. If you're interested, shoot me an email at wendy at bluelineyoga.com, or you can check out our newly launched website at wendyhummel.com. We would love to hear from you.